Hey, good morning, Life Church. I'm so glad to be with you today and uh, happy to be seeing you through the screen and some of you live and in person. It's a beautiful thing. My name's Alex Sr. and uh, I get to serve at Life Church in a number of ways. They have me set up chairs and take out garbage. Um, and occasionally they let me teach the Word of God, which is a high and wonderful, lofty privilege. Wasn't that fun? <laughs> hey, we're starting a brand new series today, and I am really excited about it because it's so relevant for our lives. It's on the book of Esther. How many of you have read the book of Esther? Raise your hands. Okay, all two of you. <laughs> That's good to know. Uh, and if you haven't, then you need to. You're going to go, I need to read my Bible. This is such a relevant, compelling story. And the book of Esther is a story of chaos. How many of you feel chaos all around you right now? And a queen and an unseen king. And we're going to be looking at that in depth. But first, I want to ask you a question. Have you wondered, ever wondered or wondered recently, where in the world is God right now? Uh, our world seems to be going crazy, and uh, I don't say that lightly. I, I, just this week, in uh, different states across the country, I've had conversations with people about people who are concerned about climate change, and uh, water is, uh, I have friends over in the West Coast, and, and their water supply is evaporating. Uh, People concerned about Russia's invasion and their war with Ukraine and just dominating this people group just because they can and will. A another person just talking about how disturbing it is that mass shootings have become common now. And, um, and 4th of July weekend, there were a number of shootings across the country. But maybe for you, you're wondering, where is God now? And it's closer to home. Uh, maybe for you, your marriage feels like it's uh, dry or dying, or maybe you have a child who's wandering further and further from the faith and you don't know what to do. Or maybe you feel like you're surrounded by people at home or at work or in church and yet you feel isolated and alone. Have you ever had a time that just felt dark? And the truth is, uh, all of us go through dark times and darkness. And in the midst of that darkness, maybe God has seemed absent or silent or nowhere to be found. And so you're asking, where are you, Lord? Where are you, God? Where in the world is God right now? And if you've ever been there or you are there right now, then the book of Esther that we're going to be studying for the next several weeks, this book is for you. And God is giving it to you as a gift for such a time as this. And this book is relevant to everyone who travels through chaos and darkness, and it gives us some light and hope at the end, but not in ways that we might expect. There's a lot of twists and turns here, and you're going to want to be here for the whole ride because it's going to feel just like your life. Uh, but I have to warn you about this book. This book is incredibly relevant, but it is, will make you feel uncomfortable. This book is going to, uh, whatever you feel like is your safe zone, it's going outside of that. It's going to make you feel uncomfortable at times. And if you think you know the story of Esther, you may have heard the flannel graph version, but you haven't heard the biblical version of Esther. And if you read Esther with, with eyes wide open, it reads more like Game of Thrones than Veggie Tales. 
which is a lot of people's kind of take on the book. And this discomfort starts right from the beginning of the book in chapter one. And we're introduced to this man named Xerxes. Can you say that with me? Xerxes. It's fun to say. King Xerxes. He actually was one of the most powerful people in the history of the world. And you probably are saying, I'm not sure I know who that guy is. You're going to find out. So let's start at the beginning with Xerxes' reign. The Jewish people were serving God and, uh, and then they slowly... Uh, became unfaithful to God. They stopped following God. And what happened was God said, if you do that, I'm going to give you over to the nations around you. And that happened. And so they were exiled and they end up for now, we'll just cut right to the chase to the, to in the Persian empire, who's the ruling empire of the world. And we're specifically in a place called Susa, another fun name to say. And it's focused on, at the beginning of the book of Esther on this guy named Xerxes, because he's kind of a big deal. And they want you to think that. So Esther 1.1, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, <laughs> who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. The citadel of Susa is in modern-day Iran. And his empire stretches. This is, uh, okay, so this is northern Africa, northeast Africa, all the way across the Middle East, touching on the, on the uh, over here by Greece, all the way across to India. There was the whole known world, aside from a couple of remote locations. And, uh, uh, and it was massive. It's over 2.9 million square miles. So here's a little bit of a way to get a framework for that. If you started uh, walking from Atlanta, Georgia, and you started walking across the country to Los Angeles, you're like... Am I there yet? Are we there yet? No. <laughs> now walk all the way back, and that's the breadth of his empire, not the depth. So massive. He ruled over 50 million people. And to rule that kind of territory, again, you see this, you need a massive military. And so for him, his personal bodyguard was comprised of 14 people. No, 1,400 people. No, 14,000 people had one job, keep the king alive. 2,000 horsemen, 2,000 lancers, 10,000 soldiers, elite soldiers, were his personal bodyguard. That just gives you a taste of the size of the military. Now, that military wasn't uh, cheap to fund, so good thing Xerxes was rich. He was the richest man in the world. Think of Elon Musk. You're like, oh, he's the richest guy in the world right now. Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos. They all have these little empires. Think about all those little empires and then think about Xerxes over the whole thing. He owns it all. These guys are nothing uh, compared to him. He owned almost all of the known world at that time. And in fact, he's such a big deal that the Persians and he actually considered himself to be a god, to be divine. On the Listen to this. This guy is not a guy with a low self-esteem. On the foundation stone of his palace, this is written, they, they have this in, in the museum. I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of all countries which speak, which speak all kinds of languages. The king of this entire big, far-reaching earth. <laughs> Just, I'm the man, and I believe I'm the man, all right? So Xerxes reign. <clears throat> so what do you do? What do you get the man who has everything? 
right? That's the question. What will the man with the immeasurable wealth and power and influence, what's he going to do? How is he going to steward that influence? Well, we're told how he stewarded that influence. Verse 3, And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and nobles of the provinces were present for a full, read that number out loud with me, 180 days. That's six months, people. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and splendor and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Now, if that sounds like a phrase that should be used of God, back to the divinity thing, he, again, he thinks he's the man. Six-month party. I want you to just see about it. Six months, he doesn't throw a party. He throws the party. Woodstock, nah. You know, Mardi Gras, think about six months of Mardi Gras. You know, there's these other crazy parties that I was looking up online. Amsterdam Unleashed, what's that? I don't know, but Burning Man, these people all go to the desert and they do crazy stuff for months or whatever. Nothing. Six-month party, all the power brokers of the whole known world. The Kardashians couldn't even keep up with this thing. And why throw a party like this? Well, now this is really, this is the part you want to go, oh, I never thought about this. This is a pep rally. It's a pump it up rally for Xerxes because he wants to invade Greece. It's one of those places he doesn't own yet. And they're very wealthy as well. And so he's trying to pump up support for his war against the Greeks. And basically what he's doing, and see this, he is putting on display all his money, all his power, all of his pleasures and, and, and saying and sex and everything else. And he's going, and you can have this too, but wait, there's more. And so if they'll join him in this and they beat the Greeks and loot Greece, guess what? They can live just like Xerxes. So this is part of this is a pump up rally and a promotional festival. You join me now, you're going to have stuff you only dreamed of. The life I'm living is a life you can have. And that's what he's saying to them. Um, so he's like, you ready for this? Who's with me? The, that was the message. That's the whole point of this party. Okay. And at the end of the six month party, he throws a one week party. There's three parties in the chapter one of Esther. And the only kind of normal one is the one that uh, the queen holds for the women, but he's holding this big party for the men and all that. So there's a one week party at the end of the six month party. When these days were over verse five, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed gardens of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So this is kind of like a staff party, right? They've been working the event and now they're going to get to party like crazy uh, with the king and the least to the greatest. So it's kind of like this all access. It's giving people this kind of hope of a future. And at the second party, we're told in verse eight, by the king's command, read this, each guest was allowed to drink with, what's that say next? No restrictions. They have access. Now think about like when you buy a bottle of wine, a really nice bottle of wine or, or whiskey or whatever, you know, people drink. It's how much is that one bottle? Now think about this. The whole, uh, everything the king has is open access. It's an open bar. Okay. And the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Now, what do you know that, I don't know if you've ever been to a party with an open bar, especially an extended party. I've lived in a lot of different settings over my life, and I can tell you what happens at a party with an open bar. People get stupid. There's a reason why they call it stupid drunk, okay? Because there's parts of your brain that just 
they go numb, they're dead. They're, you know, and, and people like fall back on the evolutionary scale uh, uh, quite a ways. And, um, and they just get stupid. That's why that phrase exists, stupid drunk. And we see this fun little fact work out, except there's a little twist here. And part of the book of Esther that you have to pay attention to, there's a lot of irony here. There's all these little ironic, kind of almost humorous things that happen in the midst of all this very uncomfortable, evil stuff. And um, this little fact of life works itself out on who? Who else but Xerxes? So look at this. On the last night of the party, Xerxes is drunk. It says he was in high spirits. Like, and think about when someone's drunk and they're stupid drunk, right? They make everybody uncomfortable. <laughs> Maybe you haven't ever met a person like that, and God bless you. But I just want you to know, that's kind of how they act. And so look at what it says here. Xerxes is so drunk. Look at what he does, okay? He orders his eunuchs to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown. What else is she going to wear? Oh, I don't know. Her royal crown. That's what the Jewish uh, Midrash says anyway, and we'll come back to that. In order to display, in order to display what? Her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. So let me break this down for you in case you missed it. And if you're not uncomfortable yet, you, sh you will be now. Xerxes was not inviting Vashti, the queen, this woman um, uh, who was his wife, to show off her uh, a beautiful and strong IQ by doing math problems in front of the whole group, or to show her savvy and talk about political uh, matters of state and political reform, or to talk about the economy, or just to show what a great conversationalist she is. No, he wanted her to come before the drunk, stupid, drunk men of the city, and accorded, naked according to Jewish writings. So the Midrash and others say she was wearing her crown and only her crown, whether that, again, that's what the Jewish interpretation was. Either way, this is for only one purpose. It's so they can lust after her. And he's going to show off how desirable he is, she is. And why would he do that? Well, this is kind of the cherry on the top of this whole message he's been sending, which is this. Look how desirable my wife is. And if we beat the Greeks and you get the plunder, you can have a life like mine. You can have a wife like mine. And, and uh, he wants to work up the crowd. You're like, this is sick. Here's the first twist. So now at this point, our, the story takes a little bit of a twist. And Xerxes joined the war campaign. You know, we're going to eat Greeks for breakfast. Um, is So what's this guy? Now this is where the irony comes in. The most powerful man in the world, a billionaire, da-da-da. And in a world where women were property, okay, this is how it was. And Xerxes, the most powerful man in that world, had the right, he could take anyone's life he wanted. And Vashti does something unthinkable here. We're told in verse 12, Vashti refused to come. In fact, I want you to pay attention that the, the people who are the heroic people in this are, uh, are women. Vashti is doing something heroic and to stand up for her dignity and, and everything else. Um, and so she does something that, again, puts her life in danger. So to a king who cons was considered to be God, she says, no. How does that work? She stands up in front of uh, the, and, and stands the king up in front of everyone. 
So now here you go, the big strong billionaire, 127 provinces, mighty overlord of the world. <laughs> He's humiliated by his wife. He spent 187 days trying to wine and dine these people. And on the last night, he gets a little stupid. He thinks, oh, maybe I'll give him just the one more thing and, and, play, and play in the idiot in front of my drinking buddies. And, and he, his wife turns him down. Xerxes is furious. So what do you think he's going to do? You know what? I probably, he probably should have went to his wife and said, you know what, honey? I can't believe it. I'm so stupid, stupid drunk. I have a problem and I'm going to work on that. I'm sorry I humiliated you. That was wrong. That's not what he did. <laughs> you know, you're like, so this is how, there's all these other things. Domestic issues are here, right? So what does he do? What would you do? Well, he does what any politician who's actually pretending to be strong, but is actually a weak person does. Um, and, uh, and I want you to just stop for a minute and see how relatable this book is, right? Have you had power and control issues in your family, in your marriage? Uh, has, has, has the dynamics in your home ever revealed kind of this ugly, dark brokenness and dysfunction? Well, we're seeing it right here on the stage. And so this is what happens. What's Xerxes going to do? He doesn't go to his wife. He goes to the Supreme Court. <laughs> He's like, I can't handle anything in my house. I don't even know how to have a conversation with my wife. I know what I'll do. I'm going to go go to the Supreme Court and, and they're going to make her do something. Okay, so look at this. Verse 13. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in the matter of the law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and they were closest to the king. So the, again, this is where it gets ironic. The, the big, strong king isn't going to go fix his marriage problem. He's going to go to the Supreme Court and he gets his boys together and he says, what should I do? And this is where the answer is going to be comical and again, disturbing. Uh, as I said, it'll make you uncomfortable. So look at what, it, what they say. They have, a, they have a little solution here. They go, Queen Vashti has done wrong. Not only against the king, but also against the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. In other words, Xerxes, this problem is bigger than you. You just did this thing, and now you, there's a domino effect. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. Women all over the world tonight are going to hear about what happened, and they're going to say, did did he say to her, come, and she said, no? Okay, I'm, I, I like where this is going. This very day, <laughs> the Persians and the Median women, there's like going to be this uprising, right? Of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. And they're going to think, hey, if the king's wife doesn't have to do what he says, then we for sure don't have to do what our husbands say. There will be no end to disrespect and discord. Xerxes, you need to act and you need to act now or the world's going to spin off its axis. And I want you to see again this misogyny and all the messed up sexual and uh, gender dynamics here. So the world's going to spin off its axis. Wives are going to start thinking for themselves if you don't do this, deal with this and make a law. Daughters are going to begin to envision a future with a life outside the kitchen, maybe King Xerxes. We don't need more feminism in this country, Xerxes. We don't need a movement of independent women who use their minds and to sweep across the land. Now, I'm not saying, this is what the guys are saying here, right? That's all in the text. Don't email me Email Alex at Life Church Livonia, and I'm sure he'll give you good answers. 
Does this sound like some of the drama and, and misunderstanding and uh, conflict raging in our own world? So here's the solution. This is what his brain trust comes up with. <clears throat> You're going to love it. Part one. So there's three parts to this. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Simply put, banish her. You're not getting what you want. Divorce her. Kick her out. Uh, be done with it. Hey, there's a way to solve domestic issues, right? Just, you know, kick her out. Kick him out. Uh, and, and so that's how we're not done yet. Part two, also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. By better, they mean obedient. And give her job to someone who will obey you. Because clearly you picked the wrong thing last, person last time. And, uh, and we're starting to wonder about you, king. Uh, and part three, then when the king's edict, that's a law, is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. In other words, let's make a law. That's how we'll make a happy home. We're not going to learn how to resolve conflict or deal interpersonally. Let's just make a law. So, uh, and everybody will have to obey it. And then guess what'll happen? It's going to solve a thousand domestic disputes. Wives will know there's consequences when you don't obey your husband. This would, this is going to settle all our problems. <laughs> Are you seeing kind of the irony here? This is just so messed up, but look at what it says. Cause it's a bunch of guys in the room right now. So, uh, so Verse 21, the king and all his nobles were pleased with this advice. There's a shocker. Um, so they email and they text and they tweet and they Facebook message everyone all over the kingdom. And Xerxes says, look, guys, I'm not going to have my woman disrespect me. And I'm not going to let your woman disrespect you. I didn't say it. Xerxes said it. This is what he's sending out. In fact, they get a slogan for their campaign. It's They're going to have t-shirts and everything. Look what it says. At the end of the edict reads this. Every man should rule over his own household. So they make t-shirts. Rule your house. Rule your house. Rule your house. And they go chanting and they have a rally and it's going to be great, right? Probably not, right? So... So where is God? So where is God? Again, very uncomfortable, very disturbing, and yet a lot of irony here, and it's going to keep, there's this book is so layered. It's, it's a literary masterpiece aside from, as the word of God. So where is God? Friends, that's how chapter one ends. I just read to you, though, we just read the whole chapter, chapter one of Esther. Isn't that amazing? And uh, I want to summarize where we've been. Um, and I want to help us understand, or kind of as we summarize, the, the world, God's people, we're living in. And so it is, how does it begin? Esther paints a picture of us, a world that has self-absorbed and wicked leaders ruling. Think about that. A world where might makes right. A world where the wealthy win. And this story opens up um, a world full of, they're in a world full of domestic issues. There's, is, is this how the king models what it means to be married and have a spouse and have a family and have a life? 
And here's their best solution. If your spouse doesn't make you happy, kick them out and find a new one. I, and you have this world where misogyny reigns, this kind of uh, uh, reduction and, and, and belittling of women. And women are reduced to objects here with no greater purpose than a man's pleasure. The world in Esther 1 is messed up, really messed up. Can I get an amen? Amen. And yet, think about Esther chapter 1. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is why it's so relevant. Think about the world we live in. Do we have power-hungry, self-absorbed politicians? Check. Um, Do we have a world where you can get your own way if you're cruel enough? Or if you're powerful enough? Or if you're wealthy enough? Check. Do we have a world full of domestic issues with, with horrible solutions? Check. Do we have a world full of abuse and objectification? Check. Esther's story may have been written thousands of years ago, but the details that shape it and frame it could have easily come from the headlines or the news feeds on our phones or tablets today, right? So as God's people, the Jews were living in that world, they were asking, where in the world is God right now? How could he let this happen? What is he going to do about it? Why is it that he seems to be silent and absent? Why is it that brokenness and evil seem to be growing unchecked and God isn't lifting a finger in response? And as this book unfolds, it answers that question. Uh, And it's going to answer that question for its readers then and for those of us who are reading it now. And it's going to answer it in a very unique way. And I'm not going to give you a spoiler. So no spoiler alert. I'm going to leave you hanging on part of this. But I will tell you something here that you should know. Did you know when when it comes to the book of Esther, the name of God isn't mentioned one time? Because again, it's a very human-centered view of the world around us. But 190 times the king of Persia is mentioned, but the king of heaven is not mentioned by name one time. But this was done on purpose. I want you to understand this uh, by the writer of Esther, because even though you're not seeing this pushed out presence of God in the forefront, God is working and moving behind the scenes where we can't see him throughout this book. And it's going to show itself chapter after chapter is more and more evident. You see, as The book of Esther continues to unfold, even though at the beginning of this book, it seems like a rich, dirty, drunk man who appears to be invincible rules the world. And God appears to be nowhere to be found. We're going to see that this is actually the story of God, the unseen king, and how he's always providentially working in his people's lives. No, how, no matter how life seems to be unfolding at the moment. And this, this story continues to unfold. We're going to see that in the times that we don't see God or feel God or hear God, he's still God and he's still working behind the scenes and he's working for his glory and for his people's good. We're going to see that even when God stays in the background, he still controls the ultimate outcomes in the foreground. In fact, the writer of Esther wants us to know that God doesn't abandon his people no matter how dark the circumstances, how compromised their hearts, or how hidden he may seem to be. 
which is really good news for you and me. Have you ever found yourself asking, where in the world is God right now? I want to read this quote uh, from the author Max Licato about what he says about the book of Esther. God has been known to intervene dramatically at times. Yet for every divine shout, there are a million whispers. The book of Esther relates the story of our whispering God, who is unseen and inscrutable, who in unseen and inscrutable ways superintends all the actions and circumstances of his people. He need not be loud to be strong. He need not cast a shadow to be present. God is still eloquent in his seeming silence and still active when he appears distant. If God seems absent in your life, this is the book for you. And this book was written this way. And I want to encourage you to be reading it this week and over the next several weeks so that we could know that when God appears to be most absent in our lives, he's there and he's working. If we'll just hold on to faith, we will eventually see his face. So we want to invite you to join us for the next several weeks and and to really dive deep into this series because I believe God has something for you and for me. And we're going to see how God can and is working in a crazy broken world like Esther's and in a crazy broken world like ours. We're going to see how he can use people. And this is really striking as we go through the book. We might not expect him to use. So if you go, I'm on the least likely for God to use list, don't be surprised if he is knocking at your door. We're going to see how God shows up providentially to work out beauty and redemption in the midst of ashes and brokenness. And it's my prayer that for you and for me, that we'll see this is, that Esther's story is our story. And you're going to see that, I pray, as we go through this. Because what was true for Esther then is true for you and me now. God can and will work in this crazy, chaotic world for His glory and for our good. And our job is to trust Him and hold on. So join us over the next several weeks. Let's uh, take a minute and pray. And I just want to invite you right now to be still before God and invite him to um, work and move in your life. And I want to encourage you, even in this moment, to invite him into your life and let him guide and direct you. Would you pray with me? Lord, our world is so broken and crazy and our lives feel out of control. And Lord, um, we hate that feeling. But the truth is that you love us, that you created us, that you, Lord, made us in your very image. And yet the truth is there's sin in this world and there's sin in our lives. And this sin in our lives and this sin in this world, it it creates brokenness. And that's why we need you to be the one who makes us whole. And so, Lord, we're inviting you right now to meet us in all of this craziness. We're inviting you right now to forgive us and heal us. And Lord, we're inviting you right now to lead us. 
Help us to trust you and open our eyes that we would see you. And Lord, that we would follow you. And we pray, Lord, you would bring about your good purposes in our lives and in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed with me, I'd love for you to uh, message us and uh, let us help you take your next steps. God bless. Bye.